here at Hamilton Road, we're learning to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. I hope you understand that. If you haven't yet turned to Jesus, we will keep asking you to do that, to come to know Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, we'll keep asking you to turn more and more of your life over to him, to make him increasingly your Lord. You see, we're making faithful followers, disciples, apprentices of Jesus Christ, people who would live, people who live their lives as Jesus would live it if he were in their place. Because following Jesus is something that we do with our real lives, we need to take some time occasionally to think more deeply about these real lives that we're living and how Jesus would live them. Think of the key questions of life. What should I do with my time? What am I doing with my money? What does God think about sex? Does God care about my work? I, I could raise a good number more. Until we're joining those sorts of dots, making the connections between God's word that we hear on a Sunday and the lives that we live on a Monday, then we're only ever half-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. Here at Hamilton Road, we don't want that. We want to grow as a community of whole life disciples, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. To help us to take a, a next step on this journey of discipleship, discipleship I want to begin a four-week journey with you this morning. We're going to come to a crucial area for disciples of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk for four weeks about family. Uh, by the way, I promised this a few weeks ago. We were moving very quickly at the end of our series in Matthew's gospel, moving very quickly through Matthew 10. Jesus saying some very challenging things about family, and I promised we'd come back to that. So here we are. We're going to learn together about what God's word teaches about family, and we're going to consider how a disciple of Jesus Christ ought to live in the light of that. Before I go any further, I'm going to tell you what we're not doing in this series. We're not going to work our way through the particular familial relationships, looking at the teaching of how a husband should relate to his wife, parents with their children. If you know your Bible, you'll know that opportunities to do that arise as we naturally preach different parts of the Bible. So the Ten Commandments give us an opportunity to think about that. The Pauline epistles give us opportunities to think about that. That's the beauty of our commitment here to systematic expository preaching. We get to look at these things. But that's not what we're going to do in this series. With this series, we're going to take a step back. We're going to get back from the detail and we're going to try and build up a big picture. And we're going to talk about, a fa about family in a way that doesn't leave anyone out. Things that we're going to say here today will be interesting, every bit as interesting to people who are single as to people who are married, to people who don't have children as well as those who do. We're going to come to an understanding of family where everyone is included, regardless of the biological family we find ourselves in right now. 
it, it might help you to know that that probably has lost you more than it's found you. So it might help you to know what I'd like to do these next few weeks. This morning, we're going to talk about the place of the family and the purposes of God. Next week, we're going to think about singleness. The week three, we'll think about marriage. And finally, we'll think about the kind of homes that disciples of Jesus Christ keep. So, this morning, the place of family and the purposes of God. I grew up in two families. There was my biological family, where Lutz and Ermgard Ebbinghaus raised me and my four siblings. That's my, that's one family. And then there was another family, my church family. As a wee boy, it was first ported down Presbyterian, and then from the time I was nine onwards, it was this church, Hamilton Road here in Bangor. Those were the important church families in my formative years. Growing up as I did in these twin families, I was conscious from time to time of a discussion about which of these should have priority in a believer's life. Uh, the discussion usually arose at the time when you were trying to make a decision about how involved you should be in a role that might require some of your time and energy in the church. And I, I remember as a kid hearing the discussion, it, it the received wisdom was that it's actually really quite straightforward. Our loyalty lies first with God, of course, and then with our family, and then with the church. Perhaps you're familiar with that kind of discussion, that kind of thinking. I certainly never questioned it at the time. What we're going to do this morning is examine the received wisdom and to make any necessary adjustments as we think about the family from a biblical point of view this morning. I need to warn you, what we're going to be thinking about here this morning is quite controversial. I'm not going to take any blame for that because I'm not the one introducing the controversy. Jesus Christ is. Let's look again at what he says in these passages we've read this morning. Mark 3, page 1005. Mark paints the scene, verses 20 and 21. Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples weren't even able to eat. When his family heard about it, they went to take charge of him for they said he's out of his mind. Quite a scene. Jesus has been growing in popularity. The fuss surrounding him is beginning to embarrass his family. So Jesus' mom and his brothers pile around to shut him up. That's what's happening here. Our, our son's embarrassing us in small town Galilee, and we don't want that. It's a fascinating what happens next. Verse 31, Jesus is told that his mom and his brothers are outside. They're looking for him. Jesus asks a typically enigmatic question. Who are my mother and brothers? Ouch. Feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? And then looking at the people sitting in a circle around him, these disciples, these apprentices, these ones who are drinking in his words, he says, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. Are you following Jesus Christ? Are you 
even if you're stumbling, don't worry about that. If, if your intention is to be with Jesus Christ, to apprentice yourself to him, to learn from him how to live, to rely on his spirit's power at work in your life, then Jesus calls you sister, brother, mother. He thinks of you as family. For Jesus, you see, there's another kind of family that takes precedence over biological family. It's the family of his disciples. It's the family of God. This idea that Jesus thinks of us as families is inspiring. Like, that, that's amazing, isn't it? But it's challenging too. It's challenging in relation to our biological family. And, and that reality isn't lost on Jesus. Flick back with me to the other passage, Matthew 10. Page 976. Jesus is talking now about this reality that our biological family and the family of God might not always be pulling in the same direction. He says, verse 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. Strong words indeed. You see what's going on here? As far as Jesus is concerned, the biological family is not God's most important institution on earth. The family is not the place where we are most significantly shaped to become disciples of Jesus Christ. The family is not the primary vehicle of God's grace and salvation for a waiting and desperate world. As far as Jesus is concerned, God's family, the church, is the most important institution on earth. The church is the place where we're most significantly shaped to become disciples of Jesus Christ. The church is the primary vehicle of God's grace and salvation for a waiting, desperate world. I warned you, I think, that this would be controversial. Good, committed evangelical Christians struggle with this strand of Jesus' teaching, along with the rest of our culture, but with a particular theological twist, we tend to put biological family first. Many of us come to church to participate in the community, and we hope that it will be good for our families, as if God would be a resource to build the greater good. We can hardly believe what Jesus says when he speaks like this. We end up dismissing his words and, and, and moving on to passages that we find more comfortable that support our view of the world. By the way, Jesus' teaching, controversial as it sounds to us today in early in the 21st century, would have been even more so in Jesus' times. Jesus is preaching to Jews in Israel. Family was everything to everyone in Israel. In those days, rabbis put limits on how long a man could go without having intercourse with his wife. Not bearing children was regarded as sinful, equal to shedding blood. If you didn't have kids, you were diminishing the image of God in the world. Childbearing was an obligation. Sometimes the rabbis would put a, a, a number on it, a minimum number of children that a family should have. 
So whenever Jesus teaches and he decenters the biological family, and that seems difficult to us, how much more so for his first audience? Remember where these people were coming from. These people are quite literally the children of Israel. They are the descendants of Abraham. God has promised to bless the whole world through their children, through this family of Israel. They're waiting for a Messiah to be born. Where? Into their family. This covenant relationship with God, it, it puts marriage and family right into the marrow of Israel's identity and their sense of purpose. We've already noticed how controversial Jesus' words are, but that's actually only the beginning. Jesus' whole life is controversial to the Jewish mind. You see, people are claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one promised to God's people as far back as Abram, but he's not even married. He doesn't have any children. How can a man be blessed who doesn't even have children? The idea would have been scandalous to the, the Jewish people of Jesus' day. How could, how could they understand this? How can we? Well, we need to go back and reread the story. And this is what I mean by getting a bigger picture of some of these things. People are familiar with God's word, know another side of this story. They know that the biological family was never as crucial in the mind of God as the people of Jesus' day thought. Flick with me to Exodus 12. Page 70, a surprising insight into this question of family in the purposes of God. We're at a crucial point, the, the latter chapters of Genesis, the early chapters of Exodus. In the latter chapters of Genesis, we're told of Jacob, if you remember, bringing his whole family to Egypt to escape a famine to be with Joseph. The party was made up of 70 persons. It's really just Jacob's extended family. So at this point, Israel is a biological family. It would be 400 years before we get to the times we're reading about in Exodus 12. We're told in chapter 12, verse 37, that when the time for the Exodus came, the time to pull out of Egypt, that there were about 600,000 men besides women and children. I don't know, I, I do the sums, and it looks to me like something around about 2 million people. It's a big, big community. But look now at verse 38 of Exodus for the bombshell. When Jacob's descendants leave Egypt, we're told that many other people went up with them. Oh, it's not a family anymore. This isn't one biologically constrained community. The biblical scholars agree that it's a ragtag collection of slaves from different races, different parts of the world. They leave Egypt under Moses. Why am I telling you this? To demonstrate that right from the birth of the nation of Israel, it was not bloodstream. It was not biological family ties that fundamentally made a person part of the family of God. What it was, was a way of life. 
those who had been rescued and saved by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were the true members of the family of God. Those who obeyed Yahweh, they're the true people of Israel. It turns out that God's people was never a pure biological family. If that's a first step to, to beginning to make sense of Jesus' teaching, here's another. In Hebrew thought, a person's claim to be a son or a daughter didn't depend primarily on biological descent. Instead, it was primarily a matter of obedience. You'd need to persuade me of that, Christoph. Okay. Deuteronomy 14. We have Moses saying to the people, you are the children of God, and then he gives them laws. You're, you're the children, so obey this, he says. Chapter 32, in the Song of Moses, near the end of that long sermon, he talks about a time in the future when the Lord saw Israel's unfaithfulness and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. Faithfulness is what makes you a son or daughter. You might be familiar with another passage which assumes that obedience is the basis for a child's welcome into the family. What was it the prodigal son said when he returns home after his dissolute life in the far off land? Do you remember what he says? He comes to the father and he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer your son. His assumption is that it's the person who demonstrates loyalty to the father by obeying him. He's considered to be a member of the family. A disobedient son is not a son at all. Folks, suddenly Jesus' teaching here in Mark chapter 3 starts to make a whole lot more sense. That's why Jesus responds to this news that his mother and his brothers are outside by saying, Hear are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. For Jesus, it's obedience, not biology, that makes us part of his family. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus Christ has displaced the biological family from the center of human life. For disciples, the biological family is not the be-all and end-all in the kingdom of God. Jesus creates a new family, and it's to be our first family. The family of followers now demands our primary allegiance. You see, those who do God's will are now the ones who are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. This is challenging stuff, isn't it? As his followers demonstrate a, a real commitment to him, it's possible that biological families will be split. Brothers will turn against brother and child against their parents. That's what Jesus warns us about in Matthew chapter 10. But maybe now it's beginning to make a bit more sense. With all that I've said so far, it's really important that we keep our thinking clear because you could easily be running ahead with a misunderstanding. Allegiance to the kingdom of God comes before family, but it will never destroy your family. We can see Jesus supporting the biological family in his own teaching. Time and again, 
he affirmed the role of the family. We've only time for three very quick illustrations. Jesus spoke strenuously against divorce. Do you remember what he said? What God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus welcomed children in a culture that easily pushed kids out of the road, especially when there was a religious teacher around. Jesus said, no, bring them to me. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes me. Finally, Jesus affirmed the family whenever he condemned those who would mistreat their aged parents. Maybe you know that passage about about the Corban. The Corban is a vow that you make to give some of your property to the temple, to, to make a religious donation, let's say. And if you make that vow, then nothing can set that vow aside. It's a, it's a sacred vow. What, what was happening in Jesus' time is that some people were, were making a Corban vow while they still had parents that they should be caring for. You would think Jesus would thank them. Oh, thank you for your donations to my ministry. That's, that's fantastic. He, he criticized them because they were failing to do what the fourth commandment requires of them, that they would honor their father and mother. So Jesus supports the biological family. I, I, I want you to be clear about that. Whenever you hear Jesus teaching as a whole, it's clear that he supports biological family, but it's also clear, I think what Jesus does is he, he keeps biological family in a really important place in our lives, but he places it forever under a new first family, the, the family of God, the church. At the start of this sermon, I shared some received wisdom that I grew up with as a kid. Ulster evangelicals talking about the church and the family, saying that our loyalty lies first with God, then with her family, and then with her church. Having looked at Jesus' teaching on the subject and the Bible's teaching, maybe we're in a position to revisit that thinking. Maybe we need to make some adjustments. I, for one, would reword that received wisdom, something like this. Our loyalty to God is lived out when our biological family finds its fulfillment in his first family, the church. I want to close this morning by thinking very briefly with you about some of the implications of all of this. First of all, one implication for our biological families. According to Jesus, the biological family isn't the whole world. Jesus didn't have a family of his own. That might be a hard message for some. If building the perfect family is our greatest good, there's a paradox here. The family that makes creating a perfect family life for itself, its number one and only goal, places a burden on that family that it was never intended to carry. No wonder our homes end up feeling as stressy as they do. We were never made to be fulfilled in our biological families. The family that makes perfect family life its number one and only goal creates a shrunken and stunted world for its members, as selfish and as small as we are who are trying to create it. 
It's the family that finds its place in the big world that God is creating, has created and is creating that will be wonderfully enriched. Remember what Jesus has been telling us in Matthew 10. Whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. He might as easily have said, whoever finds their family or tries to find their family for themselves will lose it. But whoever loses their family and gives it over to me for my sake will find it. I'm going to guess that that kind of teaching, that the biological family isn't the whole world, might be very difficult for some of us here this morning. But here's the thing. If, if you're feeling the difficulty of that, here's something you might never have considered. This is great gospel news for some other people here this morning. Perhaps you come from a deeply troubled and even abusive family. All your life, you have felt marked and defined by your family of origin. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells a different story. You are not a prisoner to biology. You're not, uh, you're, you're not, uh, your family is not your fate. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, he calls you sister. He calls you brother. You are a child of God. We've thought about the implications of Jesus' teaching for our biological families. What, what finally are the implications of all of this for our church family? Firstly, no one should ever feel excluded or marginalized in our church family on the basis of their biological family. I think churches need to repent here. I, we really, really need to repent. It's common for the activities of a church and even the ethos of a church to be structured around biological family. Married couples and their children, couples and their children and their grandchildren. The emphasis then becomes self-perpetuating. Parents join churches because they think that it's going to be good for my family rather than asking what service can I and my family give? How can we help others in this church family grow? Friends, churches should support families with children. I hope that we'll get better at doing that here. But that's not our sole purpose. Our purpose is to see many people, married and single, parents and not, become faithful followers of Jesus Christ who was single and childless. In the church family, no one should ever be excluded or made to feel second rate. A second implication of Jesus' teaching that the church is our first family must surely be that we'll want to learn to live this out. I'll say it. We use the language of church family far more freely than, than it's a reality among us yet. I think we can grow here. I think we can learn. But I am grateful to God for the many, many signs I'm seeing that we want to be the family of God to one another in this place. 
Hardly a day goes by, certainly not a week goes by, where I don't see signs of it. This is where we're going. We're going to learn together to be the family that God has called us to be. Let me pray.